Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're back with part two of our coffin a go go fest here on uh, Invention. It's October, of course, so we thought we'd bring you plenty of reprehensible material. Uh, today, we're going to be continuing the, the coffin journey. Uh, now, last time, what did we look at? I think it was mostly about people who were afraid they'd be buried alive and inventions on how to get around this problem. Yeah, yeah, that was the the primary anxiety uh, that, that those inventions were dealing with. That was the uh, the main necessity uh, that was the mother of those inventions. Uh, however, one of the, the key things we're going to be talking about here concerns a different threat, a threat that emerged uh, during the 18th and 19th centuries, particularly in uh, England. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, well, particularly in the UK and also mm-hmm. in the US. Yes, but but I think generally speaking, most people associate it with uh, with the UK, and that is a a fear of the resurrectionists. Right. So the last episode was all about the problem of you being stuck in a coffin when you want to get out. Right. Today's episode is going to be more about you being taken out of a coffin when you want to be left in. Yeah. We're talking about grave robbing here. And grave robbing, of course, was not a new thing in the the 18th and 19th centuries. Mm -hmm. Grave robbing has pretty much always been around. As long as we've had graves, uh, somebody or something has been willing to dig those graves up. Right. Uh, some of the, our oldest tombs, for instance, the tombs from the ancient world, uh, Egyptian tombs, for example, many of these were robbed, uh, you know, during their time, you know, in yeah. these centuries to immediately follow. Uh, almost immediately after yeah. they were sealed often. Uh, I think sometimes the implication is that maybe people who were involved in the burial of ancient Egyptian rich people and pharaohs uh, or were maybe involved in the creation of these tombs were also involved in opening the tombs <laughs> yes. back up to get the goodies out. Yeah, I mean, it's a good sign. Hustle. If, if you're if you're involved in the uh, the secreting away of the the dead king's uh, you know golden treasures, you can also uh, make a nice uh, uh, make a pretty penny uh, resurrecting that material, bringing it back out. But we could make a very important distinction here between removing the body from a tomb and just removing all the goodies from a tomb. Right. Yeah. I mean, pr- primarily when we're talking about grave robbing in the the ancient sense, we are talking about stealing vag- valuables. That were interred with the dead, uh, things that we discussed this a little in the last episode. You know, valuables that they were going to that were so important to them that they were a part of them and should therefore remain with their bodies, or perhaps something of value that would be needed in the presumed afterlife in the next world, right. weapons or you know magical items, things that would aid them. But here we're talking about the body itself. And now generally speaking, uh, you know, if, if, if we're dealing with something stealing the body uh, itself, generally we're, we're thinking more about animals in the ancient sense, right? Right. You didn't dig your grave deep enough. And so, of course, some scavenging animal sniffed it out, dragged it to the surface and consumed all the tasty bits. Yeah. Or, of course, uh, mythical ghouls, right? The yeah. graveyard lurking creatures that would eat corpse flesh. Yeah, and uh, it is interesting how I think there you can look to some tales of the ghouls, and I think there is uh, you know especially more modern tales and tales that emerged uh, you know post eighteenth uh, and nineteenth centuries. The, the fears of the, uh, the the fears of resurrectionists are kind of combined with fears of the ghouls, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think all of that will make more sense as we proceed here. But these resurrectionists were not hungry; they weren't looking for a midnight snack. So, what were they looking for? 
Well, they were working on behalf of science. Oh, boy. Or more specifically, they, they worked in the employ of anatomists who needed human cadavers, uh, especially for hospitals and for teaching centers. Mm-hmm. So medical ex- science was advancing at a blistering pace, but they needed bodies to chart their way into the medical future. Uh, they already had access to executed criminals, and the dissection of a criminal's corpse was considered a, a vile fate indeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but this wasn't enough. This was not enough to meet the demand. Right, because you had multiple demands. Like, for one thing, you would need fresh corpses to dissect for primary research on mm-hmm. the human body, but also a lot of it was just for education. It was for, like, uh, you know, teaching for surgical colleges and that kind of thing. Exactly. Uh, but in, And so here's, here's the lucky thing for these enterprising resurrectionists. Corpses at the time belonged to no one. Right. The, the, <laughs> there's a big gray area here because, again, generally speaking, throughout, throughout most of human history, if someone was going to dig up a grave, they were digging it up for property. They weren't digging it up for the body itself. Right. So um, roaming, drunken resurrectionists ruled the, came to rule the night, digging up fresh bodies, delivering them to the anatomists, uh, earning their pay. And uh, they even operated in gangs, acting on tips. Uh, again, coming back to that idea that uh, at times that those involved in the burial of the dead are sometimes involved in the, uh, in the, the, the breaking of the tomb. Mm-hmm. Because who better? Who has the knowledge, right? Um, sometimes the, these gangs would even use fake mourners, and uh, they would war against each other uh, for the you know for the decaying gold that was uh, you know the freshly dead flesh. Like sometimes they would, I was reading, they would like desecrate another um, uh, graveyard that, that that their gang wasn't actually dealing with, but was the sort of the domain of another gang to try and get that gang uh, cleared out uh, <laughs> to throw the scent off. Yeah, okay. yeah. So uh, you know, having. When I'd read about resurrectionists in the past, I kind of just thought of like, okay, you know, just bumbling, drunken criminals, mm-hmm. uh, sort of lonely men doing the lonely work of graveyard scavenging. Uh, but uh, at times, it was it was like a full-blown kind of criminal organization. Yeah, uh, but also I think the criminality of it is sort of a – gray area sometimes. Mm-hmm. And there there are different gradations of respectability that seem to be involved with different types of grave robbing or uh, grave opening. Like, uh, so first of all, I was reading that it seems to me around the 17th and 18th century in the UK especially, there were several different trends that all sort of uh, combined to make body snatching an especially lucrative trade. So one of them, of course, you already mentioned is the need from medical colleges and anatomists. There's an increase in demand. The other thing is criminal justice reforms leading to fewer executed criminals. So that's a decrease in the traditional supply of bodies that these uh, these colleges can have. And then the third thing is sort of a, a sort of permissive atmosphere. Like penalties were sometimes relatively minor if you were caught stealing a body as opposed to stealing grave goods. And authorities just often turned a blind eye to what was going on. Mm-hmm. I think also a lot of times the anatomists getting these bodies maybe didn't ask a lot of questions about where they came from. Right. So there was sort of, you know, uh, you know plausible deniability. Uh-huh. Like, like I'm a professional. I don't have time to worry where the bodies come from. I have important work to do. Uh, if, if the body comes, I'm just going to
going to pay the standard rate for it. Uh-huh. Uh, and I'll, I'll just leave – I'll leave law enforcement to figure out the rest. Right. But uh, so a quick note on the relative respectability and legality when comparing body stealing versus grave robbing. Many or most resurrection men would actually remove the body but leave the grave goods if there were any. Uh, even often I've read that they would take the clothes off of the dead person and put the clothes back in the grave. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this sort of distinguished them from common thieves. But while that distinction might have been important to a judge, say, if you got caught, or to an anatomist, it was not a very good defense to the common people to like to say, look, I only stole the naked body. I left the clothes in there. <laughs> I didn't steal the you know gold trinket you left with him. So many regular people, of course, were furious and horrified at the idea that their body or the body of a relative might be stolen for medical education or research, even if the people stealing the bodies were like, I'm not stealing any of the valuable stuff from the graves. Yeah, I was thinking about this too in terms of uh, the, you know, the resurrection of the body, uh-huh. bodily resurrection uh, that, uh, that some Christians uh, – believe in, the idea that it is important for the body, uh, you know, to remain intact because that's the body you're going to be in when Christ returns. Yes, that's a really interesting way that uh, changes in religious beliefs over time, I think, have, may have changed the demand for certain technologies. Like, I think most Christians today who believe in a resurrection or afterlife believe in the resurrection of an immaterial soul mm-hmm. rather than the physical resurrection of the body, though I think you can quite plausibly argue that the latter is more directly what is described, for instance, in the epistles of Paul in the New Testament. Uh, and yeah, I think it used to be a more common belief that like, I need my dead body. I need those bones. Those are what's going to come back to life. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, another thing I thought about, too, is, uh, okay, so if the primary, one of the primary fears here is just kind of like the, the, the appalling notion that the, the body of a, of, of a deceased loved one, perhaps someone of status, uh, would be dragged out and stripped of its, uh, of its belongings and dragged away in the night. Mm-hmm. You also have to think about this in the, uh, in the, in, within the legacy of the disinternment of the former Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell and the, the, pub, the, you know, the subsequent public execution of his corpse and the uh, the, the long running display of his head, or at least you know some people some people wonder if that was actually the skull of Cromwell that uh-huh. may have been replaced. But at any rate, there was this legacy already uh, in England of um, of desecrating the body uh-huh. and um, and and uh, and, and uh, you know essentially desecrating the individual through the act. Was this after the monarchy came back to power? They took yes. Cromwell's yeah. body out of the ground and they said, "Well, he escaped punishment in life, but we'll punish his body." <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, it's not. I just, mean, it seems comical now, right? And of course, it's not just the English uh, that uh-huh. did the, the, this. There, there are other examples from other cultures where, yeah, the the, the body of the king, a, a king, is uh, is later uh, dragged back out and um, and, and treated uh, in uh, some manner that disrespects. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's say that you die somewhere around Edinburgh in the, you know, early 1800s and you're incredibly concerned that your body is going to be yanked out of the grave and taken to some good-for-nothing medical college to be dissected in front of a bunch of students. What can you do to prevent this? Well, I mean, the first thing, of course, you could do is just the whole family hangs out with pitchforks and protects the grave. But I think most of us can agree that would mess with your grieving process a little bit. Yeah. Um, But people did 
could do things yeah. like that sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I guess in a way it would give you something to do and somewhere to like focus right. your emotions. Uh, of course, if you had the, the, the money to do so, you could also hire individuals to stand guard at your grave. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, one thing is that if you are just worried about having your body stolen as opposed to the theft of valuable grave goods, uh, you didn't have to hire a guard for forever until right. the end of time if you hire a guard. Like the Scottish medical colleges and the anatomists and all these people, they're not going to be interested in a rotten, multi-year-old corpse. They want a fresh body with organs and living anatomy still intact so that they can dissect it to learn things about the body or show things about the body. So you only need to guard the body for as long as the body would be fresh, basically. I don't know exactly what counts as fresh, but it often seems that this may have consisted of, you know, this may have only been a window of a few weeks or something. Right. I mean, ultimately, it's whatever the market will be. Yeah. <laughs> it's whatever they can then turn around and sell to an anatomist. Yeah. Uh, the, the other thing to keep in mind, too, is, okay, what sort of, uh, you know, not to be too judgmental, but what sort of individual are you likely to hire to stand guard day and night in the cemetery <laughs> uh, watching over the, the grave of your loved one? There's a very strong possibility that this sort of individual is the very sort of person who uh, would uh, be eager to accept a bribe from the resurrectionist uh, gangs themselves. Oh, yes, or maybe your grave guard just has a side hustle as a resurrectionist. Right. I mean, who? yeah, who better to get the tips from and stuff? Like if you've got a guard on your payroll, you don't even have to stake out a fake mourner at the funeral to see where the bodies mm-hmm. are going in fresh. You can just hear from the guard. Right. Now, another solution would be cemetery-wide security, right? So you get fences, walls, locked gates. But these options, of course, wouldn't work all the time, wouldn't be available to everybody. If you were rich, you could lock your family's bodies inside a secured crypt or vault. But I think most people you know, couldn't afford that. Uh, So we're going to talk about inventions for individual burials, specifically to prevent the theft of corpses and the the theft of grave goods. But before we do that, we're going to take a quick break. All right, we're back. So, uh, yes, we've discussed the threat. The resurrectionists uh, may be coming to steal our freshly dead bodies away so that they can sell them to anatomists. What do we do to protect them? We've already discussed the possibility of posting guards. Now we're going to get more into the hardware. Right. So have you ever walked through an old cemetery and come across what looks like grotesque wrought iron animal cages half buried protruding from the earth? The, yeah, if you haven't, you should at least look up pictures of these because what they remind me of the most mm-hmm. are the cages that are often put over air conditioning units in our <laughs> contemporary world uh-huh. uh, for the very same purpose we're discussing here, to prevent someone from walking off with said air conditioning unit. Uh-huh. These are known as mort safes, and this is one of the main interventions that was invented to protect bodies from being stolen by the resurrection men or the resurrectionists. They're not vampire traps, despite the appearance. They are not made to trap the dead down in the earth. There are a lot of urban legends about this, apparently, especially in places where mort safes are common. They were invented in the early 1800s, and the design is pretty simple. They're essentially just a metal cage. The purpose is to prevent human bodies from being disinterred. And so they're partially buried wrought iron cages that fit over top of the coffin, preventing anybody from digging it up. Um, now, another thing about mort safe. Now, of course, they came in multiple shapes, right? You could have bigger mort safes that are sort of like a big boxy cage that is partially buried in the ground, 
uh, prevents you from digging down to the coffin. You could have other ones that are just pretty small and snug and fit over top of the coffin, but it prevents you from just breaking the coffin open because you've got iron bars in the way. Now, with some of these mort safes, uh, again, you benefit from the fact that what the anatomists are looking for are fresh corpses. So again, the mort safes would not necessarily have to be bought and kept in place in perpetuity. You really only needed it as long as it took for the corpse to become unappetizing to the, its uh, its buyer. So you could put a mort safe in place until you're good and putrid and then then you dig it up or dismantle it with a tackle system and then it can be reused on another grave. Now, I've read in multiple sources that mort safes are mostly found in Scotland and, of course, that would line up with a lot of other stuff we were reading about body snatching being a, a particular historical problem in 18th and 19th century Scotland, I think especially like around Edinburgh where mm -hmm. there were – you know, there's a lot of medical college stuff going on there. Uh, but I know I have seen these in the United States. Uh, I like to walk around old cemeteries. And while I can't say for sure, I'm almost positive I've seen them in old southern cities like in Savannah, Georgia or in Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't believe I have seen one in uh, Atlanta. And I've, I've walked around Atlanta's cemeteries a fair amount. Uh -huh. uh, it's possible I've missed it. But it, it does make sense. I mean, you would, again, you would need to – you would be most concerned about grave sites that are located in large enough areas that there would be anatomists present. Right. Uh, so I've read that these are most common like around Edinburgh, around London, mm. around Philadelphia, mm. places where there would be learning taking place uh, uh, that where, where a dead body might come in useful. I, I wonder to what extent, too, this is like ultimately a, it's a com, it's a it's a clash of cultures. Mm -hmm. You know, the this this new the new science, the new anatomy versus the more supernatural ideas of, of what our body is for. You know, and this is kind of the the conflict that emerges where those two worlds meet. Because oh, well, totally, yeah. Because one thing that also comes to mind is like if I if, if I was if I really didn't care uh, about the state of my body, like one way to to try and keep this from happening is to say, look. Um, my body, I'm going to let it make sure it's plenty rotted before it's buried, you know, or, mm. or or I'm going to make sure my body is mangled in such a way that it will be of little use to the anatomist. Um, but obviously, the people burying the dead, uh, you know, they still were very concerned with the idea of getting the gra the body in the grave uh, before it decomposed, before the, you know, the signs of death were, were really apparent uh -huh. and, and certainly not – uh, you know, pre-desecrating it in any way. Right. Well, you could leave instructions like uh, Frederick Chopin in the last episode who was like, make sure they cut my heart out so I don't get buried alive. Oh, yes. Here, yeah. it, he wanted to be dissected actually <laughs> to prevent being buried alive. Here you could come at it from the other hand and say, uh, I don't want to be dissected. So instead, cut me up into little pieces so I will be of no use to the anatomist. Yeah. But then again, I'm not sure that's always true because I've also read accounts of sometimes uh, people working in mortuary services at the time uh, being able to just, say, snip off certain extremities from dead bodies that would be obviously uh, obviously of lesser value to an anatomist than a full dead body, but still maybe of some value. Right. You know, and we see some of this, uh, I mean, certainly today, we live in a time when plenty of people uh, will, will donate their body to science when they die, or they're, mm -hmm. you know, they, they certainly make sure that they are organ donors. Like, people realize uh, to varying degrees that they will not need a body once they are dead, and if there are things that can be gained, uh, you know, certainly for the, for, for the medical world or for other people's you know, lives and livelihoods, uh, then 
those organs should be taken out, those, or even the whole body should be utilized for that purpose. But this was this would have been an extremely radical idea at the time. Yeah, I, I think it reflects a, a a sea change in cultural attitudes yeah. towards uh, anatomy and medical science and medical education and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, because that would obviously be another way to cut out the resurrectionist men is to deal directly with the anatomists. Right. Um, and, and, and and some individuals likely did that, I'm guessing, but they would have certainly been the exception to the rule. Yes. Uh, and there there would be other advantages to dealing directly with the anatomists, such as avoiding what I'm about to talk about. <laughs> uh, so the trade in dead bodies at this time also sometimes took ludicrous and horrific turns. In the late 1820s, there was one famously awful incident that resulted in uh, – well, you could say it came basically from the direct pressures of the dead body economy. So at this stage, due to legal and technological restraints like the introduction of mort safes in the early 1800s, legally dissectable bodies are in very short supply. But Edinburgh and the medical colleges and the anatomists still need bodies for science. And one such anatomist was the Scottish physician and scholar Robert Knox, who was an esteemed member of the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh. And Knox, like his peers, uh, would arrange payments to have bodies brought to his dissecting room. And it seems like many of his other peers, he again didn't ask a whole lot of questions about where they came from. You know, let's just assume that the cadavers are legit. Uh, So here into the story come two dudes named William Burke and William Hare. Ah, yes. Both were born in Ireland, but by the 1820s, they had both uh, immigrated to Edinburgh and Scotland. And in 1827, Hare was working as the keeper of a public lodging house. So that year, Burke also showed up in the house. I believe he was originally a lodger there, but they sort of got together and started collaborating. And in November of 1827, Hare became annoyed because one of the people living in the house that uh, where he was renting out the rooms died while owing him four pounds in rent. And in order to recuperate the back-owed rent, Burke and Hare came up with a plan to sell the body of the dead tenant to local anatomist Robert Knox. Uh, again, the the anatomist I just mentioned a minute ago. So they got seven pounds for the body. Mm-hmm. That's a nice profit. They were owed four. They got seven for it. Or they got more than seven, I think. Seven pounds and ten pence or so. Uh, you can see how one might begin to get ideas. It's almost kind of like the uh, the cobra problem in economics that we've talked about on Stuff to Blow Your Mind before. Oh, yeah, where if you put a price tag on on cobras, uh-huh. it's, going to, uh, it's going to change the way people interact with cobras. It's going to change the, the value of cobras. Right. It's not actually an incentive to get rid of all the cobras from the city. It's just an incentive for people to bring you cobras. Yeah, to raise cobras, et cetera. Right. So an incentive uh, paying people for dead bodies bodies might not necessarily mean bring us already dead bodies. <laughs> it can just mean you need to show up here with a dead body. How it got dead, I don't know. The, yeah. I mean, especially if, if there's a premium on freshness, which the, you know there is. Exactly. So over the next year, Burke and Hare, with some assistance from their wives apparently, murdered 15 other people oh. by luring them into the lodging house and then suffocating them and selling their fresh bodies to Robert Knox. Uh, the scheme was uncovered and they were caught, I think, on Halloween, 1828. Oh, Apparently, Hare turned state's evidence. He, he testified against Burke and Hare was released for testifying against his accomplice and Burke was hanged. And of course, that, that means that Burke's body was likely uh, then used by anatomists. Oh, I bet it probably yeah. was. I don't know that detail, but I, I, I can't imagine that uh, irony did not happen. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, and Berg said in his confession, so he was like, okay, Knox was innocent. He didn't know anything about this. He was not involved in the murdering of these people. But it still essentially ruined Knox's reputation. And uh, evidence of this is captured in an often quoted children's rhyme from the time. Have you heard this before, Robert? I'm not sure. Let's hear it. Okay. Up the clothes and dune the stair, bend the hoose with Burke and hair. Burke's the butcher, hair's the thief, knocks the boy who buys the beef. Oh, that's good. That's the whole story encapsulated right there. <laughs> uh, but lest we unfairly single them out alone, Burke and Hare were not the only people to figure out this scheme. If you need a fresh dead body, you know, you save yourself the digging and you just murder people. Similar murders for the anatomist body trade happened over the years in Britain and in the United States. Uh, apparently, uh, from the name William Burke, one of the two murderers here, uh, a person who was murdered so that their corpse could be sold to a dissection room was said to have been Burked. Oh, wow. Such a grisly uh, an episode from history. Uh, now, one thing I think we, we might have skipped over was, you know, we mentioned uh, Burke uh, having been hanged. His body would have likely gone to the anatomist as well. Mm -hmm. uh, that was, of course, a, a a, a, a pre-existing place that you would actually uh, obtain the bodies that were being used uh, for the anatomist. Oh, did we not mention that at the top? Yeah, th that was like the original legitimate route to get fresh dead bodies was from the bodies of condemned criminals. Right, and then but then what happens if you're not hanging as many of your criminals? Right. right yeah. That's that's going to reduce the uh, uh, the number of legit corpses, and that is just going to grow the demand for illicit corpses brought uh, up by the resurrectionists. Now, I want to briefly turn to resurrectionist uh, techniques, physically techniques. Like, what do they do to get the bodies out? You often, if you see a scene like this uh, in a movie or something, you will see the resurrectionist digging all the way down, like digging a grave-sized hole and then prying open the lid of the coffin, right? Mm -hmm. That is not usually what happened. And if you think about it, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Like, that introduces all kinds of unnecessary difficulties into your body extraction routine. Uh, so, Like digging a grave, yeah. uh, digging a fresh grave is, is, a, is in some intense work. Right. And then even re-digging a grave where the, at least the soil has been loosened for you, that's still quite an endeavor. Oh, yeah. I mean, one thing is that sometimes there could be structural defenses in the ground. This is something people occasionally thought of. Put a heavy stone slab on top of the ground. That's a one simple way yeah, to I mean, defend that, this the is, grave. This is old school uh, yeah. grave defense against uh, scavenging predators. Right. If if the family could afford it, maybe a mort safe if you could afford it. But even if you couldn't think about it, even if you have relatively limited means, you can think of ways to make digging up a coffin extremely difficult. How about throwing tree branches into the ground as you as you fill the earth back in, mm. right? This would make it like trying to dig through roots. The yeah. digging would be extremely difficult. Or throwing in big stones as you fill the grave back in. This makes the digging up very hard. So there were a lot of things you could do. And then if you think about it, even if they haven't done that and it's just normal earth filled back in, you'd have to dig out a lot of space, like you're saying, to get the lid open. So instead, resurrectionists had a method where they would break open an aperture somewhere at the head of the coffin. They'd either dig down a narrow tunnel near the head of the coffin and they would break open through the, through the roof of the coffin or the lid of the coffin and then throw a rope around the neck and haul the body out, either through a hole in the coffin lid or sometimes they would do a thing where they would dig a tunnel down nearby and then dig a horizontal tunnel into the side of the head of the coffin, break a hole in the side and pull the body out laterally. Hmm. Either way, the, this common method was a rope or a hook around the neck and then pull the body out, leave the coffin in place. 
And there was a further invention that was an insurance policy against exactly this kind of removal. Uh, the solution is kind of ingenious, I think. It's called a coffin collar. I was looking at one example in the collection of the National Museum Scotland. Uh, it's from around 1820 from a village called King's Kettle in Fife. And it's basically a huge block of wood with an iron horseshoe shape bolted onto it. And this iron horseshoe would fit around the neck of the cadaver, locking it in place inside the coffin. So if a resurrectionist loops a rope around your neck and tries to pull you out, you just stay firmly stuck in place because of the iron collar unless your head comes off. <laughs> yeah, this is one of those situations, though, where if, if they get that far, like they've essentially already desecrated your grave. Mm -hmm. You're just uh, essentially putting in a safeguard to keep them from uh, – profiting from the desecration or just taking off with your entire body. Yeah, I mean, maybe you wouldn't care if somebody's already dug down and desecrated your grave as long as your body stays put. Mm -hmm. uh, now, maybe we should take a quick break, and then when we come back, we can discuss a really interesting invention that has many supposed benefits, one of which is the supposed ability to thwart grave robbers, but, but uh, has a lot of cool features, too. All right, we're back. Are you ready to talk about the Fisk? Yes, let's talk about the Fisk. I really enjoyed this one. Um, the Fisk. The so, Fisk, Fisk, Fisk. <laughs> so uh, humans are, are really hard to please when it comes to the state of their corpse, right? Uh -huh. On one hand, we're squeamish about the prospect of decay. We're squeamish about things being done to our body after we die. But on the other hand, present them with a cast iron Victorian mecha suit that contains your body in an anaerobic environment and allows visitors to gaze at your uncorrupted face through a glass faceplate for all eternity, and they get a little creeped out. Yeah, it sounds creepy. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. <laughs> uh, well, I, I feel like, uh, I'm, I mean, I'm really leaning into the, the creepiness here, but a lot of people did not think this was creepy, as we'll discuss. But some people did think it was creepy even at the time. Yeah. They wrote about it. Oh, yeah. yeah. This was the case of Almond Fisk's 1848 patent for the Fisk airtight coffin of cast or raised metal, a.k.a. The Fisk Mummy. <laughs> so good. Uh, we should say, by the way, the inventor's full name, not just Almond Fisk, Almond Dunbar Fisk. <laughs> so good. Yeah. If that name hasn't been pilfered for fictional uh, purposes of some kind, you're really missing out. Now, I should note that Almond Fisk did not invent the iron casket. There were already iron caskets in use going back as far as 1836 by others. But he really, like, he really presented a, a new concept on the iron casket and certainly was able to, to market it and sell it uh, to a great number of individuals. I tried to find some sort of ballpark estimate for how many were sold. And uh -huh. I, I was not able to find it. But, but in, and of course, once they're sold, they're under the ground, usually, unless they're accidentally unearthed later, as some have been. Uh -huh. uh, but at any rate, like, it was a successful product. Uh, uh, so, w like, what's the main selling point of this product? What are they advertising? Well, from uh, the patent itself, Fisk writes, From a coffin of this description, the air may be exhausted so completely as entirely to prevent the decay of the contained body on principle well understood, or if preferred, the coffin may be filled with any gas or fluid having the property of preventing putrefaction. So, wow! So you stave off the <laughs> you stave off rotting by uh, either sucking all the gas out of this cast iron jar that you're in, mm -hmm. 
or you can fill it with what pickling fluid or something. You can brine your body. <laughs> and and I, and I do want to stress there are like two more things on this. First of all, there is a glass f- face plate. Uh-huh. Uh, there's there's a lid to it, but you pull back the lid and you can see the face of the corpse. That was key. That was like a freshness guarantee. Yeah, you can look in and see the the face and see that it has not decayed. And then likewise, when we talk about it being looking like a mummy and looking like a sarcophagus and being a little alien looking, uh, we are not. Uh, you know, we're not elaborating too much here. Right. Uh, like you can, you can look up images of this. It does have a strong Egyptian air to it. Oh, yeah. I was reading in a book by uh, Marcella Sorg and William Hagland called Forensic Taphonomy, The Postmortem Fate of Human Remains from uh, CRC Press 1996. And the authors here really emphasize the parallels with the mummy tradition. Mm-hmm. The coffins were mummy shaped. You'd imagine like a, uh, if you've seen a mummy wrapped, it's same type of shape with the arms folded over the chest, the wider at the chest, the figure narrowing as it approaches the ankles with the bulge and the feet poking up. Uh, also, uh, Fisk's early designs included decorative shaping of the outer metal with patterns that, quote, simulated the folds of drapery and ornamental scrolls and flowers. Again, all iron or cast metal on the outside. Yeah, when I look at them, it looks like something that um, that a Warhammer 40,000 Space Marine, maybe a <laughs> necromonger would be buried in. Uh-huh. You know, it has that kind of like gothic uh, but also semi-Egyptian feel to it. Uh, but so there's some kind of like preservation impulse here, kind of like with mummification going on. Yeah, yeah. The the primary idea here, like the primary selling point, was that this would protect the body from swift decay, from seepage, from uh, from vermin that might uh-huh. get in and uh, and start messing with the body, and uh, more importantly, allow the body be. T- body to be transported uh, a greater distance, which indeed was, you know, one of the reasons for the rise of modern embalming practices in the U.S. as well. Oh, yeah. But uh, I've seen it, uh, you know, commented on that, like, one of the cool things here is that essentially you have this, you have this cast iron casket, you have this steampunk casket, and indeed this is the age of steam and iron. Uh, Steam and iron have enabled people, certainly in the United States at the time, uh, to travel vast distances. Mm-hmm. But the thing about traveling vast distances away from home, away from the place that you would prefer to be buried, is that your corpse may not survive the trip back if it is not somehow uh, uh, you know, preserved or, in this case, contained within a special vessel. Mm. And this was, you know, this was a major thing for people. You know, you're dealing in, again, increased means of travel. Inventions have, have enabled people to travel greater distances, live at greater distances. And then your body dies when it's across the continent. Uh-huh. There, just may no, there just may be no bringing it home. It may have to be buried uh, there in California and not re- make the return trip to, uh, say, you know, the, the Carolinas. Well, another thing I would wonder about is if you're transporting dead bodies across long distances now that you've got trains and stuff like that, uh, wouldn't there also be hygiene concerns and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Getting into the seepage and the vermin. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's one thing to transport the body, but then, yeah, to, to, to I mean, who's going to ship it if you're going to have to deal with uh, all this foulness? And this was all even more important if, say, the individual died of an illness such as cholera. Right, so the cholera is not, like, dripping out on whatever yeah, exactly. train car you've got the body on. It's, like, trapped in there in the sealed iron casket. One of the, the the really interesting things about this is that uh, there are a number of these that apparently were used in the American South. Uh-huh. Um, for instance, uh, there's one there's an actual specimen of the Fisk uh, casket that can be seen at the Pink Palace in Memphis, Tennessee, which is a kind of a 
I think I went to it when I was a small child, so I have no memory of it. But um, it's uh, like a, a museum of sort of a museum of oddities. Like they had like a, a lot of uh, mm-hmm. like stuffed and mounted heads and all. Tennessee version of the Museum of Jurassic Technology, <laughs> sort of, I guess. But but it was a case where somebody was uh, like working a field and they hit something uh, in in the field, and then up comes this casket. And according to uh, an article at Atlas Obscura, which highlights uh, places where you can go and actually see one of these caskets, mm-hmm. there's another one in Tennessee at the Museum of Appalachia in Clinton, Tennessee. Marking that for a road trip. <laughs> now, of course, this was, uh, this was a more expensive option for your burial purposes. Uh, uh, according to that uh, Atlas Obscura article, which was written by Allison uh, Meyer, uh, your, uh, your standard uh, you know, casket was just going to run you a couple of bucks. This one would have run you between 7 and 40 bucks. Mm. You could get a lot for bucks back then, though. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it was expensive. Uh, it, to some, it was a little disturbing. And in 1849, uh, Fisk's workshop and showroom burned down, and Fisk himself was severely injured and died the following year. Oh, no. Um, but, uh, you know, as we'll discuss, that doesn't mean that the, the casket wasn't a hit. Like, uh, the company continued to sell them after his death. Mm-hmm. And, however, as reported in 1858 by the Chicago Press, there was an accusation that these airtight caskets could explode due to the breakdown of the body inside. Mm. Uh, but apparently the Fisk Company denied this, stating that thousands of their product had been deployed without explosions and that none had been deployed in Chicago. Now, now we do – that is a mention of like thousands of, of the product, but I don't know to what extent we can you know, trust the, the marketing. Yeah, how would there. they know for sure? Well, I mean, well, I mean they would and, potentially know for sure, but would you, know, you might want to inflate that number when you're mentioning in the press, I guess. Right. Uh, but also, I mean, I can see that there might be something to this, the idea of sealing something shut when there is a thing decomposing inside. This is a, this is a problem today with modern lock-in-the-freshness coffins. Yeah, yeah. I, in fact, I was, I was looking around about this and I was reading the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Radiation Emergency Medical Management uh, website. They have uh, an article on management of the deceased in radiation emergencies. Uh, and it, I noticed that it, it touched on what seemed to be a standard fact of sealed metal caskets, uh, which are, by the way, uh, far pre- uh, preferred to wood in cases of radioactive remains. Mm-hmm. Metal caskets and coffins should have a, quote, seal that releases pressure from inside the casket and retards entry of groundwater. Well, yeah, I mean, you'd want it to have some kind of uh – if you must have a sealed casket, I mean, again, the, the reasons for having that are not necessarily super clear, but uh, but it should be able to burp, right? Because mm-hmm. there are going to be gases released from decomposition. And uh, yeah, I can totally see the possibility that a sealed cast iron casket would explode. Now, one thing you're probably wondering, though, is, is ultimately, did this casket work? Assuming it didn't explode, like the, the manufacturer stated, uh, does it actually preserve the body? Right. Now, on one hand, it doesn't have to preserve the body very long because these were designed to go in the ground right. um, once they you know, made it back home. So it just needs to last long enough that the the customer can be satisfied that that's their loved one inside the casket. They can perhaps be identified, and then you can just have an, an you know a normal uh, you know, funeral for the individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like I said, some of these end up popping back up again. They end up uh, being exhumed, uh, you know, due to farm work, uh, construction, etc. And uh, I was looking around, and according to a 2006 find chronicle in the 2010 article, a Fisk patent metallic burial case from western Missouri, uh, 
here's how it all broke down. Like, so basically, this is an example where farm equipment hit it, and uh. they had to bring it up, and they went ahead and just examined it. I mean, it's, it's a historical uh, curiosity. Sure. Uh, also an anatomical curiosity. So they point out that the glass viewing window was still intact, but it was no longer transparent. So you couldn't actually see through it anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, the casket was damaged when it was unearthed, uh, again, by accident. So, uh, you know, they, that alone had ruptured the, uh, the, the container. But they also said, quote, The coffin contained a moderately well-preserved skeleton in anatomical position. The majority of soft tissue had decomposed, but head and pubic hair, along with many of the fingers and toenails, were discovered in their proper anatomical locations. <laughs> While the coffin seal had been compromised, allowing water into the case, it does not appear to have caused any significant movement of the bones or artifacts. Is it common to note whether the pubic hair is in the right place? Well, I mean, it's it's just a you know a statement on what's there and what is <laughs> what is what is rotted away, et cetera. Um, but but it was interesting too. The authors end up kind of like going through the history of uh, the, the fist casket and all, and they point out that you know this was a successful product, quote, fulfilling the practical, aesthetic, and emotional needs of mid nineteenth century Americans, as well as the recent technological advancements allowing for the standardization, mass production, and large scale distribution in the Eastern United States. Mm-hmm. And even after Fisk's death, and and also after his presumed burial within one of these, the company continued to operate and sell their product, eventually with the Egyptian elements, the more alien elements uh, of the design somewhat relaxed, especially when the company was sold to Crane Breed and Company in 1853. Uh A fun fact, former U.S. Vice President and Secretary of State John C. Calhoun was buried in one of these. Uh, May his passionate defenses of slavery forever suffocate in that putrid iron jar. (laughs) Yeah, I was reading there were some other um, like notable uh, members of the Confederacy. Yeah, that uh, they may not have Jefferson Davis. Jefferson Davis was like into these or something. He was into. I don't think he ever. I don't. I did not read anything to indicate that he ended up in one, but he Uh liked the idea of them. Okay. Also, former First Lady Dolly Madison was also laid to rest in uh, a fist casket. And this Dolly. uh, Yeah, and this seemingly may have actually helped uh, make the choice more popular. Uh-huh. She's a trendsetter. But eventually the market moved on to a different type of metal casket, to the sheet metal casket, which still remains in use today. And I think that's important to drive home, especially if if through most of this discussion you've been thinking, oh, a cast iron casket, that's weird. Uh, you know, when most of the caskets that are used today uh, in the United States are still sheet metal caskets, they're still they have evolved from this basic uh, trend. Yeah, I think today they look less like space sarcophagi and more like uh, they're kind of polished sometimes yeah. or made to look like wood or some other ambiguous material. Um, according to Sorgan uh, Haglund's book, which I mentioned earlier, the sealed cast iron coffin was mainly used. Uh, in a window of time from about 1850 to 1880. And the 1880s were when embalming became very popular. Uh, so you can see that as sort of like a trade-off technology. Uh, and they write that this uh, this accompanied a shift in funerary culture, changing emphasis from, quote, encasement of a body for immediate burial to its presentation and display – 
And also with the change in caskets, it led to greater attention to the interior furnishings of a casket rather than the exterior decoration. And I think this is because of the idea of like open casket funerals. Right. Of course, not everybody today is stuck, you know, even if you're going to be buried, stuck with the plain metal or wooden caskets that are uh, most common in the West. There, there are still, I think, some really creative and beautiful and unique funerary art cultures in the world. That's right. Uh, the Ga people of Ghana are known for their beautiful beautiful and, and often and often very modern looking fantasy coffins. Yeah. So if, I imagine a lot of people have seen images of these, but if you if you've ever seen a, a picture just in passing of say a a casket or coffin that looks like a a fancy shoe mm-hmm. or perhaps uh uh, it looks like a shell. I mean, it a looks like a spaceship or something. Yeah, yeah. A, a boat. Uh, they're beautiful to behold. They take the ships of you know all these things, buildings, animals, especially um, some item that might be a part of an individual's uh, trade or craft. Uh, the idea here is to bury the individual in a vessel that resembles something that meant something to them when they were alive so that they can remember it in the next life. It's sort of like a a more abstract version of the grave goods concept. Mm -hmm. So like you could bury somebody with the tools or things that they love to use in their life or you could bury them within a representation of the things they loved. Yeah, yeah. And and again, these they're really splendid. Mm-hmm. Um, you should definitely do yourself a favor and look up uh, uh, look up some images of these. Local clients will pay something like um, $1000 for their 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 coffins uh, in these cases. And again, it's because there's a, a big you know, emphasis placed on them, mm-hmm. but also there are international clients that might pay between 5 and 15K, uh, this, you know, due to the, the higher quality materials that may be used in these uh, cases, but also the international standards that have to be met, uh, you know, for wherever this this uh, casket is going. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but I love the idea. I mean, I don't know if this is what I want for me, right. but I think it's uh, – I think it's a beautiful concept. Like so, especially in the United States, we have this very grim and dour view of the funeral, and certainly a funeral can be just that. But the idea that it might be a little more uh, flashy, that it uh. might that you might be buried in a, in an image of something that defines you, uh, you know, something that you loved. I think that's a, a beautiful idea. Yeah, what I found really striking about these caskets is uh, the idea that they are artistic and very expressive and colorful and personalized as opposed to the most common like funerary customs I can think of in the United States where all of the hardware is extremely kind of like serious and muted and uh, and standardized. Yeah. You know, it's almost like uh, it wants to be elegant without being flashy or something. Yeah. You know? uh, but like I love the idea of like individually artistically created uh, vessels for burial. I can only hope that Nicolas Cage has one of these picked out, that he's one of the international <laughs> clients. Uh, because as we've discussed before, you know, he's, he's, he seems to think a little outside the box uh-huh. when it comes to his own, uh, his own funeral, his own, uh, you know, his own resting place. Uh-huh. He has that, uh, that beautiful pyramid. Uh, is uh, it beautiful? Aside. It is beautiful. Okay. A beautiful pyramid set aside in, uh, in New Orleans mm-hmm. uh, for his burial. Um, I've seen it. Yeah, I, I've, I've been to it as well. I've touched yeah. it. It's nice. <laughs> I felt the power radiating off of it. Uh, if I remember correctly, one, one important thing to state is he's not the he's not the first individual in New Orleans to have a pyramid uh, um, grave. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not like he's coming in with some sort of wackadoodle idea that doesn't line up with uh, tradition at all. He's not the first Louisiana pharaoh, right? 
But uh, yeah, I would hope that that he would also be buried within, uh, you know, the, the form of something that Nicolas Cage loves in life. He goes around saying, did you know that this here pyramid symbolizes my individuality and belief in personal freedom? Well, one, one can only hope. At any rate, um, we're going to have to close it out there. We're going to come back with another episode on inventions uh, that, uh, uh, that revolve around uh, f- uh, funeral rites, around caskets, around protecting uh, the, the body of the deceased. Uh, but again, we're, we're just going to we're going to close this one out right here. Uh, certainly, we want to hear from everybody. If you have uh, if you've gotten to see any of these uh, examples of these different devices and inventions in your travels, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, if you want to check out the show itself, uh, inventionpod.com, that's where you'll find it. You'll also find it wherever you get your podcasts and wherever that might be. We just ask you to subscribe and to rate and review. That really helps us out. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.